This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the April 7th, 1942 episode of CBS's The World Today, with updates on the war from New York, London, Australia, Washington, and more. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. The war news is deepening in gravity tonight. The Japanese and the Philippines have made new gains, of which Albert Warner will tell you later from Washington. The enemy is making dangerous progress in Burma, too, and the British have fallen back again after destroying oil and cement installations. But there's a brighter side to tonight's news picture. Navy Secretary Knox announces a decline in Axis submarine successes off our Atlantic coast and the sinking of two more Jap ships. In Russia, the Red Army reports continued gains. Before Australia, the Allied position is good. Our forces maintain control of the skies, and American war supplies are arriving in increasing quantity. The battle in Burma, the threat to India's territory, and the crucial Indian political negotiations are vital questions for all of us. So first, the direct report from London and Bob Trout. London believes there is now a fairly deep no-man's land between British forces on Burma's Irrawaddy front and the enemy. British troops are still taking up new positions north of the town of Thite Mio, 35 miles up the river from Prome. One enemy column on the west bank of the Irrawaddy is now some 20 miles north of Prome. Another is on the east bank a bit farther south. Only patrol activity on land yesterday. Madras, the big city on India's east coast, had an air raid warning this morning, but no raid. And today, the enemy radio heard in London shows signs that the Axis is a little upset because the natives of India and Ceylon don't seem to appreciate the Japanese bombing of the hospital in Ceylon on Sunday. Dispatches to London from New Delhi tonight predict that the Congress Party's working committee will stand by its original resolution opposing the British offer and will merely add a supplementary statement explaining the committee's opposition to the revised offer sent by the British War Cabinet. And, of course, we have heard Mr. Jinnah's statement that Britain has agreed to a representative Indian as defense minister. Naturally, there is no confirmation of these reports from London. All I can tell you is that when Sir Stafford Cripps postponed until next Thursday his announcement of what he is going to do, New Delhi dispatches said this was cause for optimism, but it did not look that way in London. The War Cabinet's reply to the Congress Party's objections dealt with other problems in addition to the defense of India, and all that can be said from London tonight is that this reply represents the best the British War Cabinet can do. And now the rest is up to the leaders of the Indian groups. People who have lived here for years tell me that the British people as a whole have never been quite so interested in India before. Tonight, the manager of a London restaurant came to my table and whispered that the lady across the way was Sir Stafford's wife. A minor incident, certainly. But a couple of months ago, Lady Cripps could have entered any London restaurant without notice. 
I think that many people here believe the British offer will be refused, and yet they cannot quite bring themselves to believe that at such a moment, the Indian leaders would refuse such an offer. At any rate, tomorrow, Sir Stafford should have the replies from the Congress party and from the Muslim League, and on Thursday, he is scheduled to announce the answer. Tonight in London, the Admiralty announced that the British destroyer Havoc has been wrecked off the Tunisian coast. The destroyer is a total loss, but only one rating has been reported lost. The British submarine Tempest is overdue and is presumed lost tonight. I return you now to Columbia in New York. Once again, we have been unable to contact our correspondent in Melbourne, we think because of transmitted trouble, but here is the latest from Australia as reported by cables and press dispatches. American and Australian aircraft continue their aerial counteroffensive against the Japanese with a raid on the enemy base at Lai'i on the eastern end of New Guinea. Several grounded planes of the enemy were set afire while hangars and runways were damaged. Though our own planes attacked from a low altitude through very heavy anti-aircraft fire, no mention was made of any losses on our side. But a single Japanese fighter that tried to intercept our bombers was shot down into the sea. This attack on Lai'i marks the fourth straight day that United Nations planes have sought out the enemy's bases on the northern approaches to Australia. It followed raids yesterday on Rabaul and Gazmata on New Britain Island, and a particularly successful raid last Saturday on Lai'i, in which nearly two dozen enemy planes either were destroyed or damaged. No Japanese action against Australia is reported, but an Australian communique said that during the Japanese raid yesterday on Port Moresby, capital of Papua, one Allied plane was shot down while another is missing. Meanwhile, on the Australian mainland, a meeting was held between General Douglas MacArthur and American and Australian supply offices, at which an agreement was reached for filling the needs of all forces in the Australia-New Zealand area. An encouraging statement was made by W.S. Wasserman, chief of the United States Lend-Lease Mission to Australia. He said that American supplies are reaching the Antipodes in ever-increasing numbers. Australia's Minister of the Navy announced that Australia never stood in better position than she does today. If a Japanese invasion attempt came now, we could face it with a greater measure of confidence than at any time previously. Next, tonight's story from our own capital. War news, political news, the day's picture at home and abroad, given to you by Washington and Albert Warner. On Bataan Peninsula, General Yamashita continues the drive, which appears to be his supreme effort. The War Department just now says the Japanese have thrown fresh reserves into the fighting. They have made some additional progress. Tanks, artillery, dive bombers, and masses of infantry continue to attack the center of our line. For the first time in recent days, the Army acknowledges heavy losses by the defenders as well as by the enemy. Again, the Japanese bombed a hospital. The Navy reports for the second successive day, American submarine achievement. In the China Sea, a submarine sank two Japanese merchant ships. Navy Secretary Knox said that in the last week, enemy submarine attacks off the Atlantic coast was sharply reduced, due in part to counteraction. He also announced that colored volunteers would be accepted in the Navy. They will man the smaller ships to begin with. Production Chief Nelson said today that war conversion to change the face of American industry was now sweeping forward, with most private building construction soon to be halted, along with the production of almost all consumers' durable goods. And Mr. Nelson cracks down on the Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Company for improperly using aluminum. The company is to be prohibited from fabricating or dealing in aluminum for a three-month period. The State Department has reached an agreement to resume the controlled shipment of certain non-military supplies to French North Africa. And even the President is privileged to make a wry face over the income tax, 
No, he told us at his press conference today. He hadn't figured what the Treasury's new tax proposals would cost him. Not for next year. It was bad enough now. But that had not inclined him towards a sales tax. The whole question of wages and profits presses forward. The Senate passed a $19 billion war appropriation, but yielded to the caution of administration officials who thought that any rigid profit limitation on contracts would be a harmful way of meeting the problem. So a Senate majority struck out a sliding scale limit of 2 to 10% on profits and simply gave to the executive departments the power to renegotiate contracts to prevent excessive profits. At the White House, the president told us that studies were being made on controlling wages as well as prices. Mr. Roosevelt spoke up against bonus payments under a piecework system. He doesn't like a piecework system, and he said in wartime, the workers turn out all they can without such bonuses. Mr. Roosevelt also related the cost of living to wages. He said that the average man thinks about what it costs him and his family to live. The average man in industry, he added, turns out more goods when he works 48 hours a week than when he works 60 hours. These developments still left the subject of control in shadowy form. I spoke to a senator today who often represents the middle ground opinion in Congress. Senator Omani of Wyoming thought that sometime soon we must take this problem out of shadow land. The people know this is an all-out war, said Omani. The government has to be elevated to the people's viewpoint. In an all-out war, he said, we have got to put a lid on everything. Profits, prices, wages, rents. Otherwise, we face inflation, great cost to the government, and dissension. We've got to forget profits and run on the same level we've been running on in the past. England, of course, went through this same situation in the early days of the war. Edward R. Murrow was there and saw at first hand how it met the situation. For his story, I return you to Mr. Murrow in New York. After listening to all the debates and exhortation about the 40-hour week, price fixing, and the control of profits, it would perhaps be useful to examine for a minute British experience on these matters. Their problems are not always our problems, and we may not approve of their solutions, but at least we ought to know about them. There was passed through the House of Commons a piece of legislation known as the Essential Work Order. It is one of the most revolutionary documents ever to pass a democratic legislative body. This order applies to all industries and all individuals engaged in furthering the war effort. Here are a few of its provisions. No man may leave one job and go to another without the permission of the Ministry of Labor. That simply means that a man can't quit a job in a shipyard and go to work in a munitions factory just because he'd make another 50 cents a day. Wages are fixed and must be paid even if the employer has temporarily no work available for his men. Whenever disputes arise between management and labor concerning the dismissal or the resignation of a workman, decision is made by a local appeal board composed of one workman, one representative of the employer, and one representative of the Ministry of Labor. Workmen may be moved from one job to another or from one section of the country to another at the direction of the Ministry of Labor. Violation of this order may lead to a jail sentence of two years and a fine of $2,000. All this simply means that British labor voluntarily gave up most of the rights one through decades of bitter struggle. It means that British labor is technically tied to its job as tightly as the serf was ever tied to the land. These rights were given up consciously in order that available manpower might be fully mobilized and because the leaders of labor were confident that they would be restored after victory, knowing full well that without victory they would have no rights of any kind. But labor was not alone in giving up its rights. Management and corporations felt the weight of wartime legislation as well. There is in Britain an excess profits tax of 
That means that a business firm or corporation must deliver to the government its entire profit over and above the average earnings for a standard pre-war year. After the war, 20% of this excess profits tax will be refunded to the companies in order to carry them through the period of readjustment. The farmers have made their sacrifices too. Farm labor cannot leave the farm and go to the factory in order to earn more money. Prices of essential foodstuffs are fixed. There's another provision too. Any farmer who fails to get the most out of his land can be thrown off his farm and replaced by a more competent man. This has in fact been done on several occasions. The decision to take over a man's land is made by what is called the County War Agricultural Committee, a group of neighbors together with a representative of the Ministry of Agriculture. The whole aim of this British legislation is to achieve equality of sacrifice. You have been listening to Edward R. Murrow, who will shortly return to his post in London after a stay in the United States. We'll hear another report from Mr. Murrow tomorrow night. And now briefly tonight's story from Russia. Soviet military dispatches place emphasis on the northern front. A supply train is said to have arrived in Leningrad, and the implication seems to be that the German siege of that city has been broken. However, that report has come before, and there's nothing yet official on this one. The Moscow communique, which has just been received, says 79 German planes were destroyed yesterday, and the Red Army now claims that 494 Nazi craft have been destroyed in the last nine days. And that is the story of the fighting in Russia. <laughs>